Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 255. Is Super Mario a Buddhist? We're joined again by Silicon Valley game designer Jane McGonigal to hear the conclusion to her keynote from the 2011 Buddhist Geeks Conference on how awakening is an epic win. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. What I talk about a lot in my book is what the state of eustress really brings out in gamers. There's lots and lots of science on this, and just to summarize it for you, gaming seems to unleash our natural ability to be more curious, more optimistic, more energized, more joyous, more focused, more determined, yet open to failure, totally okay if we fail. Um, And then I put in parentheses because I think this one's a little bit controversial. This is not as much in the literature, the scientific literature. This is just something I see. So I put in parentheses. To be fully present, um, when we're playing games, we don't ruminate on anything else. We don't have other stories going on in our mind. And there is something about gaming in that way that I think is similar to meditation. A lot of people play games during difficult times in their lives to avoid ruminating on it, um, which can make depression worse or make anxiety worse, and, uh, and just to be fully present to the moment. But of course, games in that sense are distraction, so it's not exactly being fully present to our lives. It's like being fully present to a different life, and that's why I have it in parentheses. It's not exactly mindfulness, but there's something, there's something there, that sense of being fully present to the challenges in front of us. They just happen to be unnecessary challenges, fictional challenges. Now, what I think is interesting about this list is how similar it is to the kind of virtues that we associate with trying to become enlightened, trying to reach that insight, right? So this list here, the curiosity and the brightness, the joy and concentration, the idea of right effort, um, really determined but okay with any results, that sort of equanimity that we aspire to, If you think about a good gamer, a good gamer, a good sport, has equanimity, whether they win or lose, right? And then, of course, mindfulness. I think there's an interesting overlap between these techniques that are supposed to bring you to enlightenment and the techniques, the skills that gamers are actually developing. I don't know what this means. I'm just giving it to you as something interesting that I saw. Possibly it means that Super Mario is a Buddhist. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Who wants to take a picture of that slide? It's really awesome. You guys know you want to tweet it. I'll give you a moment before I go on. I know. Okay. Okay. Right. So maybe, maybe that's what we're uh, maybe that's what we're really saying. Um, I think that gamers and Buddhist practitioners are super empowered, hopeful individuals. They're people who have built and broadened themselves to be open to challenges, to be able to rise to the occasion and participate wholeheartedly in the world around them with all of those traits that we mentioned, the curiosity, the brightness, the determination. 
And the fact that young people today, if you were born after 1980, the more likely, more, later after 1980 you were born, the more likely this is to be true, that these young people have accumulated 10,000 hours of practice at gaming by the age of 21. That's something interesting to think about. Imagine young people accumulating 10,000 hours of Buddhist practice by the age of 21. And it turns out that this kind of practice in gaming does make you better able to go out into the real world and tackle incredible challenges to be a part of social engagement and social impact wholeheartedly um, in, in ways that we're just starting now to see with game design. Um, I kind of sort of asked this question, you know, what are we practicing for? What are these kids spending these 10,000 hours if gaming is a practice? What's the actual outcome? And of course, I, you know, a lot of, actually, I don't know, I shouldn't say we all agree on this. Um, I had an interesting conversation with um, practitioners of, of mindfulness meditation this past week um, who said that they felt that you practice meditation in order to be, go out in the world and be more loving and that to practice love everywhere you go. Um, so here are a couple games where people are going out in the world and using their gamer virtues, their skills that might lead to awakening um, for real life. Good. This is a game called Fold It. It was created by researchers at the University of Washington who thought that gamers might like to help cure cancer in their spare time. Um, and so these are biochemists who are working on something called protein folding, which looks at how different proteins in the human body fold into more or less stable configurations. And everything that happens in our body biochemically happens through protein folding. And if proteins fold up in an unstable shape, we get diseases like cancer or Alzheimer's. So scientists want to look for all of the most stable configurations, but it turns out that there are so many different parts to each protein and so many different ways that they can twist and bend that it takes supercomputers more than a year to test all of the configurations for just one possible protein for one disease. And there are countless proteins in our body. So what they did is they decided to make a game because maybe gamers would be better at this than supercomputers. So they created an interface. It's a little bit complicated, but not more complicated than that World of Warcraft interface that we were looking at earlier. And it teaches the gamers to look for stable protein shapes. Well, it turns out that after just six months of 50,000 gamers playing together in the spare time, the players were able to co-author a paper for Nature Journal, the most prestigious scientific journal, publishing the findings that they had actually beat supercomputers on five out of 10 challenges in just six months of training, and one team of players actually stumbled upon a protein shape that no scientist working professional scientists had come up with before. They've actually started manufacturing it in the lab to test it as a possible medicine for cancer. And 99% of these players, they did a survey, had no training, formal training in biochemistry. So I think this is pretty cool. These are just gamers, ordinary gamers, who decided to use their virtues of curiosity and optimism and determination to uh, try to cure cancer instead of just solving, you know, saving the virtual world, maybe save the real world. So we talked about Farmville a little bit and how you have to help your friends in the game by going to fertilize their crops and feed their chickens. Well, a friend of mine was wondering, if we're so willing to feed each other's virtual uh, chickens and water each other's virtual crops, would we be willing to do that in the real world? So he has a platform called Ground Crew, and you set it up on your phone, and you tell it when it can bother you, maybe only on weekends, maybe only on weekdays after 5 p.m., and it looks for where you are, and it gives you social impact missions. 
including possibly a request to water some crops or feed some chickens, but the real crops, because you're walking down the street and there's a community garden around the corner, or you know, it's a real chicken because there's an urban farming project in your neighborhood. And so you can actually play Farmville in the real world. So this is pretty cool. And it, it's working. Uh, ground crews worked wa- working with a group called Garden Angels, and they've set up these test garden centers, and they've increased by a factor of more than 100 times the number of volunteers participating in the gaming gardens since they set up this platform. So gardens that used to have four volunteers suddenly had 400. You can imagine in a local community what that increase in scale of participation could do for this really important social action, right? Trying to feed ourselves healthier locally and sustainably. The last game I want to show you is called Evoke. It's actually a game that I made. We made it with the World Bank Institute, and the goal of this game was to teach young people, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, how to start their own social enterprises. So how to start a business that would not only allow them to make a living, but also to tackle a social challenge like hunger or poverty or climate change. The problem was that most of the young people in Sub-Saharan Africa did not see themselves as being in a real position to actively engage with these challenges. Um, They certainly did not see them as unnecessary obstacles, and they really doubted their own ability to do anything um, that would really matter. By the way, that URL, urgentevoke.com, the game is still live if you're interested in uh, getting a group together to play it. Um, What we did is we put this trailer online. Um, We shared it with some schools around Sub-Saharan Africa. We also sent out a text message that said free job training and the job of inventing the future to um, mobile phones across Sub-Saharan Africa. And when they came to the site, which you could use on your mobile phone or on a typical computer, they found this world uh, set 10 years in the future. You can see here it's uh, February 13th, 2020. They're in Tokyo, and there's a famine in Tokyo. And who have they reached out to for help? They've reached out to this underground network of kind of superhero problem solvers located in Africa, because it turns out that the people who have spent the past decade tackling problems on the ground in Africa, where the challenges are so intense and the resources are so scarce, that they've actually become the superheroes of the future through the creativity they've developed, through the determination and resourcefulness that they've developed. So you can follow this online interactive graphic novel to see stories about people coming out from Sub-Saharan Africa to help the rest of the world, to help Rio de Janeiro deal with the disruption of the energy grid. Rio loses its power, and these heroes come to help set up more sustainable energy sources. Or when there's an outbreak of cholera in London, it's these innovators who come to London and teach them about clean water access. So you would come to the site, you would read the story, And since it is about superheroes, we asked you to imagine yourself in the year 2020. How would you go from who you are today to being somebody who would be the Spider-Man, the Superman of tomorrow? Every superhero has an origin story, right? So Peter Parker got bit by the radioactive spider and that's how he became Spider-Man. Over 10 weeks, we asked you 10 questions to help you imagine yourself 
being this, this sort of super empowered version of yourself? What's the motivation? What's the spark that fuels your heroic effort? Who are your dream allies? Who would you team up with if you could team up with anyone in the world? You know, who are the bad guys? What is it that you really worked up to try and address and confront and help, uh, help overcome? So if you completed all 10 questions, you actually had this really interactive kind of online resume or calling card that could help you attract mentors in the future. But mentors for what? Well, we also had weekly missions that were tied to the story where we asked you to go out in the real world and actually try to solve one of these problems today. So the week that we looked at the power shift, for example, in Rio and the disruption of the energy network, we asked you to change how you powered something that you used in everyday life to a more sustainable energy source. So solar power for a light bulb or kinetic power for your cell phone. And then you would document what you were doing with social media, blog posts, photos, and videos. So you'd have to show us that you were actually doing this in reality. So for example, here was a player who, the week that we looked at the food, the famine in Tokyo, decided to set up an urban farm in his community. It's actually a player in Mexico City. This was a player who, the week that we looked at um, new energy sources, decided to set up, uh, an offer his neighbors and friends to power their electronics with his bike, sort of converting his bike into an electronic powering station so he could submit a video so other people could learn how to do that. Other players would give you feedback, positive feedback on what you'd submitted by giving you plus ones, just like in a role-playing game, plus one courage or plus one entrepreneurship or plus one sustainability. So this would represent one player's total skill level over time. If you completed all 10 quests and all 10 missions, the World Bank Institute actually certified you as a social innovator. So you had this sort of outcome, this learning outcome. And uh, we managed to enroll just under 20,000 students from over 130 countries for our first 10-week pilot study. And uh, you can see that uh, it was a really global audience. One thing we found, we were really asked to focus on South Africa in particular, but it turned out there are a lot of young people in the United States, unemployed after graduating from college or having a hard time in this economy, who not only wanted to start their own businesses, but actually wanted to save the world. Um, so that was really interesting to see. So at the end of the 10 weeks, if you had completed all of the missions, it turned out that you had actually created a business plan for your own social enterprise, right? So there's actually a tangible outcome. And if you wanted to, you could actually put this business plan up online on a website called Global Giving where you could raise money to start the business for real, where you could attract mentors to support the business for real. So we had more than 50 teams actually go forward with this process and actually start real social enterprises in India, in Nigeria, Uganda, China, Jordan, even in the United States. Just to give you my favorite example, there's a group of gamers um, actually based in the United States who decided to work with players in Africa to start something called Libraries Across Africa. And this is the kind of creative idea that you could only have, I think, from really opening yourself up in a game environment. They decided to make libraries more like McDonald's. So McDonald's has this great franchise system. I don't know how much you've traveled. McDonald's are everywhere. There's basically not one, one square mile on the planet without a McDonald's. So the gamers were like, how could we make libraries that ubiquitous and spread like McDonald's? So they decided to set up a franchise system for libraries. If you wanted to make a living in Africa, you could do it by setting up a library. And they would show you exactly physically how to set it up, 
They would help you get the books. They would encourage you to loan the books for free, obviously. To be in the franchise, you have to loan the books for free, but you could also make money by selling snacks at the library or by charging people cell phones. So they've actually raised enough money to start this program, put it into practice. They have their pilot libraries up and running, and they're studying this, um, and they're going. And, you know, more than a year after the game, this is their job now, players of the game. Um, so not bad for 10 weeks of playing a game. When I look at Evoke, I see the outcome is really what, what I'm trying to create in the world, which is wholehearted participation, um, really bringing all of ourselves optimistically, with curiosity, with a determination towards a goal that we, we, we want to help, we want to be there for others, but um, we're open to failure. We know that's a possibility, and so we'll try anyway. And, uh, and I think that this is what games are doing. So, Let's see if we can answer some of these questions. Do Buddhists and game designers share goals? Um, I think that we do. I do think that many game designers, particularly people working in the space where games and, and reality are blurring, are trying to end suffering, are trying to help people wake up and be the best versions of themselves, and then to bring those virtues and, and abilities to the world around them to help others. Do Buddhists and game designers share methods? I think they do. I think that we broaden our perspective to be more aware of others, to be aware of the world that we're a part of, and to build skills and abilities that allow us to be that best version of ourselves. Now, could Buddhists and game designers share practices? Um, well, you know, I hope they will, and in fact, they already are. One more game to show you. Uh, this is actually the, the center that I spend the most time listening to podcasts from and reading books from and going to meditation sessions with. And they've made a game. They've just started a game. You can actually play this if you're interested to go online and see what a Buddhist game might be like. They've called it a Sangha-wide participation game. They're participating together to raise money for Africa. They're going to play it from June to October of this year. And their goal is to collectively earn 10,000 points. And people are pledging to support this effort if you reach 10,000 points, I will pledge a penny for every point, or I'll pledge a dime for every point. And the way you earn points, you can do things like you can listen to the podcast, you can uh, call into the radio show and talk about your meditation practice, you can make a donation, you can... Uh, you can participate in a bridge walk to raise attention. Um, you can even just tweet uh, uh, an idea for uh, awareness practice. So that's how people are raising points. And I think it's just kind of a fun way to see a little bit of gaming brought into the Buddhist practice. The last thing I want to do is, you know, I told you I have a lot of question marks around here. I don't have a lot of answers, but I, I do think that this could be an interesting conversation. So I thought in just the last couple of minutes, just to sort of let's practice what it would be like to have Buddhists and geeks share more of our goals and our methods and our practices. In our family, I think Kelly would be a little bit more of the Buddhist, and I would be definitely way more of the geek. That's me dressed up like one of my favorite video game characters, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Katamari Damacy, super awesome game. Um, so Kelly, would you come up and join me? And we've been having a lot of interesting conversations in the last month or so leading up to this. So let's, let's give them a little inside peek. Um, by the way, we were thinking about this idea of the, in every generation there are conservers and adapters that Jack shared with us this morning, and Kelly turned to me and said, that's what it is. I'm the conserver, and you're the adapter. 
Uh, she also said to me over lunch that we're identical twins, um, born six minutes apart. I'm younger. And she said, that's what it is. It's a generation gap. We had the whole generation gap. <laughs> yeah. So um, why don't you share some of the things that, that you were challenging me with and raising as questions? Well, I, the first thing I wanted to say is that in, this is the first time I've gotten to hear Jane's ideas uh, fully expressed relating now that she's been outed as a Buddhist. Uh, and so for the first time, I was thinking about this question of awakening as an epic win. And, uh, and I, I had to think back in my own practice. Has there been a time in my practice where I felt like I was putting in effort in something that I had little faith that I would succeed at? Uh, but because a trusted teacher told me, hey, do this practice, I think this is going to help. And it, it reminded me of some practices that I began maybe 10 years ago in order to um, improve some difficult relationships and to think of these difficult relationships as benefactors and to do gratitude practices for these people and these relationships. And I hope I wasn't one of them. You, you were not. <laughs> I won't say if it's anyone we're related to. But... Um, <laughs> But, you know, it, it, I found that it was very much like the process you described of, of epic wins where a trusted teacher told me to do this. I did it. It was difficult. It was uncomfortable. But I had some faith. And the end result, after some sustained effort, really transformed the relationships in a way that did feel like an epic win. Like, this was not the, the way the relationship evolved was something I did not think was possible. Um, That's cool. And, so that, and that is my only epic win because even though we're supposed to have the same jeans she got both of the gaming jeans so i've never had any game actual epic wins so one of the things that we were talking about and was inspired very much by ethan's talk this morning i'm fully on board with the idea that gaming can be a practice that supports a lot of really great qualities positive qualities but uh more often than that i hear people interested in turning uh mind training into a game and that games might actually replace the mind training practices that are more traditional including those that i teach and I was thinking about uh, how the Dharma always goes along with the teacher and the Sangha. And when I look at games like this and some of the other games I've seen developed to support mind training, I see where the Sangha is. I see that there's a lot of social interaction. Uh, and so my, my first question to you is, where's the teacher in the yeah. games? Yeah, um, this is something I've been trying to think of a good answer to um, because it's difficult. In some ways, I think that the game designer is like the teacher in that uh, they are sort of prescribing a practice. Mm -hmm. When you sit down in front of the game, you're gonna do what the game designer has asked you to do. Mm -hmm. um, so there is that sense of leading the student slash player through the activity. Um, and then there's also maybe the opportunity for other players mm -hmm. to become teachers. So to see games not as something ever that you play alone, but that it's something that somebody brings to you and leads you with. So for example, one of my favorite games is Portal. And uh, it's kind of challenging. By the way, if, if you guys are gamers and, and not gamers and you wanna play a good game that will help you build up the gamer virtues, um, you can download a game called Portal for your computer and play it. You don't need special gaming equipment, so Portal. But Kiyosh played it first. Mm -hmm. My husband played it first. And he sat down next to me while I played, and like a very good teacher, he didn't tell me exactly how to do it, but was there to make sure I had support and guidance. And so maybe other players serve as teachers or teachers serve as other players, maybe, something like that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that you said this idea of that you, gamers are never playing alone, because you know, one of the things that we say is you shouldn't leave people alone with these practices. That, and those of you who have a practice have probably had some really important instrumental support from teachers where when you, when you hit 
certain difficulties in your practice, it is so important to be able to articulate out loud what is going on in your mind, what is going on in your life, and to get some sort of guidance on that, to receive that personal guidance. And uh, it is true that in that on retreat or in teaching, sometimes when a sangha comes together and shares what they're experiencing in their practice and in their life, sometimes in, in just hearing what other people are experiencing, even not mediated by the teacher, mm. that there, there can be a lot of support for the practice. Yeah, and that's something that gamers do. Gamers are prolific members of discussion forums where if you're stuck in a game, you go into the forum and people give you help. They create wikis to share their experiences and sort of build up collective knowledge about how to face these obstacles. Um, so it would be interesting to think about how those practices might support. You know, could you, could you support a Buddhist practice the way that gamers support each other? in these games. Now, one of the things that I found uh, intriguing that you suggested is that you could remove the teacher from a lot of settings and have some sort of technological platform that would serve the role of the teacher and that you might have similar experiences or outcomes taking the human out of the student-teacher interaction. Right, well, we were talking about a dance video game, like Dance Central, where if you wanted to learn how to dance, I suggested that maybe you were too shy to go to a class or you were too anxious to go to a class and be seen dancing in public, which we could imagine potential Buddhist practitioners yes. don't want to be seen at a Buddhist you know, class yet or they're too scared to go. Um, but you play this dance game, it teaches you the moves, uh, inspires you, encourages you to do it um, as, a, as a sort of introduction. Mm -hmm. um, granted, the game is only so good at making sure you're doing it correctly. I mean, it knows if you're stepping at the right way or time, um, but it's not a skillful teacher. But it might serve as like the baby step teacher so that you feel the confidence to show up at a real dance class or dance club later on down the line to get the real wisdom, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because one of the things I was thinking about is how, you know, when you are learning something from someone who is modeling that to you, and I think those of you who have had influential teachers in your life, uh, my guess is that you had the sense that you learned a lot through kind of a direct transmission of seeing how these teachers are in relationship to you and in relationship to others. And that's true in a dance class too. A lot of the ways that we learn new movements, new ways of being in our bodies is that we see it modeled and seeing it modeled in real life mm -hmm. not only activates mirror neurons, it makes it then easier to replicate that behavior, that skill. Uh, but it also increases rapport and empathy and a sense of similarity with the person that we see modeling that. And uh, although there's more research on that with uh, physical movement, my guess is that is true with the things that we are training ourselves in, whether it's compassion or attention uh, or other virtues, that when we see that modeled in a human being and in relationship to us, it, it not only makes it easier for us to find that new way of being in the world, but that it gives us a sense of being like that thing that we aspire to, which would create the kind of um, confidence that you were referring to that we need for, for um, persevering in the face of challenges. Right, so here's a field of research that I don't think anybody's working on yet, but if they are, it will be at Stanford, okay. which is do avatars ever create mirror neurons? Yeah, that, would be a, that would be an open question. Um, but what I hear you say that I think is an important sort of takeaway is that there needs to be a role for a teacher, a face-to-face Teacher. And not just because I don't want to be put out of a job. No, but because because <laughs> because the, the practice is, is requires wisdom and it requires empathy and being in person can mm -hmm. really help. Um, and I'm totally on board with that because the kinds of games that I like to make involve physical location and uh, and co-presence and shared. Well, that was awesome. Thank you. Uh,
Kelly, my sister, for being my awesome <laughs> geeky counterpoint. Um, we've reached the end of the session. Um, if you're interested in uh, chatting about these ideas more, maybe thinking up a game for Buddhist Geeks 2012, that's my email address, that's my Twitter address. And um, I hope that these questions were intriguing for you. And if nothing else, um, I hope that you will play massively multiplayer thumb wrestling with your sangha and, uh, and, and try and... Uh, spread that a little bit more. Thank you. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.